One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are continuing to record this podcast remotely for the safety of our guests and our team. So, on with the show. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time. How are you? Life okay? You're staying well? Staying sane? I know, there's question marks after every single one of those for me, but it's really good to have your company. And this week you're in for a treat. My guest is an actress who plays many other roles. She's been a dancer, a choreographer, presenter, an author, a mother, and in the final years of her own mother's life, was also a carer. And that's something she writes beautifully about in her new book, Remember Me, Discovering My Mother as She Lost Her Memory, a memoir that documents her mother's life and in turn her own as she started to lose her fight with dementia. In fact, it's worth mentioning here that not only did she write this book whilst grieving for her mother, who passed away sadly in 2019, but also whilst in the grips of COVID back in March, getting her mother's story onto the page furiously because she feared that she may not survive her brush with COVID-19. Fortunately, she did, and she is now recovered. But as you'll hear, it's had a profound impact on her. Born in Oldham to Indian parents, she grew up in Manchester with two elder sisters and a younger brother. Her father was a GP and her mother a homemaker. Fellow actress Sarah Lancashire was and remains a childhood friend and appears alongside her in the forthcoming release of the movie version of the West End show Everybody's Talking About Jamie. She graduated from Manchester University with a degree in Arabic and Middle Eastern politics before going on to act and in the late 90s became known for her roles as Anita in Victoria Wood's Brilliant Den Ladies and then as Sunita in Coronation Street. Most recently, before the world locked down, she was playing Ray in the West End production of Everybody's Talking About Jamie. And her son, Akshay, who's now 26, who she raised as a single parent, has followed in her footsteps 
and is pursuing a career on the stage. Having spent the last week literally lost in the pages of her book, I cannot wait to talk to her. So let's dial up Shobna Galati. Shob, it's been so long since I've seen your face. I know, I think the last time we saw each other is when actually we went to uh, Denise Welsh's charity, uh, Gem Appeal. That's right. And I was with my mother. You were with your mum, who was on very good form that night, as I recall. She was on good form, though we did have an incident later on when we were going home, but she was mostly on good form. Listen, I'm going to get into your book in a moment, but your mum loved a party. Your mum and dad were party people, weren't they? Yes, 24-hour party people to really put, you know, to put a slant on it. They, They did love to party. They were, you know... I think theirs was the greatest love story, if you like. And they really enjoyed, my dad was really, really social. My mum became more social after my dad passed. At first, when he first passed away, I know that she really withdrew into herself and then almost had to re-identify herself, especially in the community in which you lived because widowers kind of had a lower currency. Yeah, that that would be a fair assumption, I think. I think, though, it's... um. It's a fair assumption in all communities, though, isn't it? You know, we still, all of us seem to think that we need a man to be or a partner to be a person who kind of makes us whole. I wanted to explain to the listeners how this book came to be, um, because at the very beginning of the first lockdown, just as COVID really took a grip of the country, it, it took its grip of you. And you were very poorly with COVID for a while back in March, weren't you? March 2020. Yes, I was really ill. I was on tour with um, Everybody's Talking About Jamie. And I remember being in Northampton and feeling like I wasn't myself. And I said to the company manager, I said, you know, I don't really feel myself. And then somebody disappeared from work and wasn't ill and it was an unexplained and was ill and was an unexplained illness. And I just thought, well, I don't feel quite right. Anyway, I got through the show and then went home because it was the end of the week in Northampton. And we were due to start in Birmingham on the Monday. You know, Boris said, please don't. I mean, Boris, I don't like to call him that, actually. Our Prime Minister said, don't go to the theatre. And we'd done sound check, we'd done blocking, we were all ready to go. And don't go to the theatre happened and we were all sent home. And then as I was driving home, it was really hot. You know, and I thought it's the stress of losing your job, losing your income, losing everything in that instant. I thought that's what it was. But no, it was it turned out to be COVID. By the Thursday, I couldn't breathe. I rang 111. Um, they said, stay on the phone, um, you know, stay by your phone. We'll get somebody to phone you back. Five hours later, somebody phoned me back. And then immediately as the nurse called me, she said, "Uh, you need to go and see a doctor. So I went to see a doctor. It was all very cloak and dagger, you know, wait in the car park till you're called. You know, you arrive and there's somebody in a hazmat suit. Um, And there's the doctor just in an apron and hardly any PPE herself. And she says, you've got secondary pneumonia and your lungs are not working. That's what she could just see from that moment of being with me. I mean, she listened to my chest. She said, I think one of your lungs is having a difficulty. But you weren't given a bed? You weren't admitted to hospital? 
I could still breathe. However laboured, I could still breathe. And she said, if that changes, you need to dial 999. I felt, you know, it was a very alone time for many people. I mean, mine was one experience in many. I think a lot of people had that experience where nobody told you what was actually happening to you. Well, they didn't know themselves. I mean, it's not necessarily anybody's fault, is it? So you were on your own in Oldham. You were also in a rather fragile emotional state because you were still very much in the grips of grief um, after losing your mum, who you'd cared for for how many years, Show? Well, I actually moved back to be with my mum 25 years ago. Wow. Uh, Well, when my son was, um, you know, just a couple of days before he was born, I kind of moved in with mum because she said she would look after me because I found myself a single mum. And, uh, yeah, so I was there with her. I was there with her. We we sort of had a kind of very symbiotic relationship. And I think that by the time she needed me, I was there. But I didn't do it entirely alone um, towards the, you know, the latter part after the diagnosis of dementia. Um, there were other members of my family who stepped up. My, my sister would travel every two weeks from her house, which is down south. You know, uh, and my brother would come over. He's not too far away. But it was it was difficult because, um, you know, there was an assumption, though, that, you know, I'd always be there. But it's quite complicated when you're a freelance performing artist. And also you were living with her and she had been, I mean, she'd been the bookend uh for, for you as, as a parenting duo in so many ways because she helped to support you as you raised your son, who's 25 now. I can't believe he's 25. He's 26 now, I think. Oh, 20, my 20. God. I know, he's a big lad. He's six foot one, two, six foot two. <laughs> and he six followed you into, into the theatre and in, into the acting profession. Yes, he has. He has, though that's been struck terribly by this pandemic at the moment. I mean, he's done a few plays. And he, he really enjoys live theatre. And now it's just a question of whether he can land something on um, film or TV, which, you know, has become increasingly harder because everybody wants something now on that because mm. the theatres are shut. And you were on such a roll before lockdown and COVID struck not only the world, but you also. Um, mm. You were touring with everyone's, everybody's talking about Jamie. You'd, you're also playing the same role in the feature film with your childhood friend, Sarah Lancashire. So yeah, finally, yeah. you know, like the movies show, this is massive. I know, Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood in Sheffield. But, you know, I'm not saying anything about Sheffield before we have people writing in. I loved Sheffield. But it is, it's like Disney and Hollywood. Tell me about tell me about the movie because obviously Sarah is somebody that you grew up with as as a child. She's in the film. Who else does it star? And I mean, this is slated for, in normal times, what would have been a cinema release. You know, premieres. It's a big deal. It's got uh, Max Harwood who plays um, Jamie in it, and it's got Lauren Patel who plays Pretty, and they're absolute newcomers, uh, and they're just. And they just vibe really well. And it's got uh, Richard E. Grant in it, who plays mm-hmm. Hugo, the drag, the older drag queen who yeah. shows it. But, you know, gives Jamie the lessons and, and, and the ropes. He's kind of like the fairy godmother character. And then there's me and Margaret. And Margaret is Jamie's mum, Sarah Lancashire, who um, is um, trying her best. And it's got Ralph Innocent in it, who plays Jamie's dad. It's a, a role that you secured and took into the West End. 
but to play it on the big screen, especially alongside Sarah, who, you know, you've known since yay high. That must have been a really lovely experience. It was extraordinary because we were... um you know, in the dressing, well, you might not know, but we, um, when you're on location, you you live in tra- you live in trailers. When I say trailers, that sounds glamorous. I think the most glamorous trailer was Sarah's and Richard's, but ours were a little different. <laughs> the makeup trailer is kind of like a big long um, RV, mm-hmm. and uh, so Sarah was in one chair and I was in the other chair, and we kind of were laughing because. It seemed like it wasn't hard work to be friends on screen. It's, yeah. it's, it's almost like we cheated the work because there was already chemistry, if that makes sense. Yeah. And and it didn't feel like work. Hopefully the reviewers won't say, what's that show with a galati? What's she doing? But um, I just felt like maybe I should be trying harder. Should we be trying harder to be friends? And she said, no, it's just, she's so experienced though, isn't she? And she just said, no, it's just fun. Just let's just do this. You know, that's half the work done. But it is also lovely. You 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 talked about the fact that when you took that role into the West End, it was it was your first big West End role and you were 52. And then you go on to play the same role in a movie. And there you are, you know, breaking kind of glass ceilings yet again and sort of not being pushed to one side for a Hollywood name actress. It's, you know, that I love that. The meritocracy played through. That's good. It doesn't happen often. No, it doesn't happen often. And I remember going down for the audition for the West End and I said to Mama, uh, my mama said, oh, it's a, it's a West End role. And she said, darling, you've always wanted to do that. I mean, she knows that. That's been, you know, when she watched me and Mama Me, I was I did the international tour of Mama Me and she just... She just said, oh, this is, you know, this is what you've always wanted. And then the West End, she knew. And she just went, oh, I wish you luck and I'll see you later. Because obviously it was just with mum, I'd get up and I'd go to London and come back and it was very snowy that day. By the end of the afternoon, I knew I'd got my role. So I was really excited by it. Because I mean, musical theatre is not something I've trained in. I mean, I've trained as an act, I've trained as a dancer. And I can sing, I can hang a tune in the shower. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not bad at comedy or an, an acting. So, you know, it just happened, so happened. Were you able to go home that day and say to your mum, I got it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, what did she say? She didn't remember where I'd been. Oh, <laughs> you know, then she, you know, she caught up on everything and she was very, very excited. You know, but, and but um, so- she came to watch. The book that you wrote... Um, as you came out of of COVID, and by the way, I have no idea how you managed to write. I was actually doing it whilst I had COVID because I thought I might die. I thought I might die, and I know that it sounds dramatic, but I really did think I might. Did you? Was it that bad? Yeah, it was bad. It was bad, and, you know, there were moments where I just thought, who would know? Oh, Ash K would know. Your son would know. Yeah, yes, he would. He would know. But you know, but what happened in the night? If you can't breathe mm. and you gasp, yeah, 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 for breath. And you know, That's I followed right. all the, all the different rules that had, you know, all the different suggestions that had come up. You know, lying on your chest because there was points where you couldn't, you couldn't, I couldn't breathe, and I'd have terrible days. Um. I mean, it just so happened that I was going to write the book whilst I was on tour. So you'd already planned the book? I'd planned it, yeah. I'd written a blog 
uh, for um, Alzheimer's Research UK. And that had been spotted by a young up-and-coming young man called Hamza Jahanzeb, who works in publishing. And in the publishing house where he worked at the time, which was Octopus, they had a thing where anybody can bring somebody to the table. So Hamza said, oh, there's this actress called Shobna Galati, and she's written this. I'm bringing her as a possible author to the table because what she's written about is really interesting. It's about her and her mum. And, you know, and then it happened from there. It was kind of the strangest thing. And then I got an email saying, oh, you've written a blog and we're this publishing house and we'd really like to meet you. So from the blog, the book grew. And then this sense of urgency kicks in when you're so poorly that you're wondering if you're going to pull through this, that you wanted to get it all down on the page. Is it Was that was that the sense of urgency? Yeah, the sense of urgency was certainly that because I didn't know, I don't know, I mean, it, it's quite a thing to say. I didn't know whether I'd survive. And I had all of this in my head ready to come out. And also, I think having COVID, sort of really connected me to my mum you know in her sort of lockdown world of having her dementia and you know the four walls which she was in all the time and you know the walls in her head as well and I just thought I felt very connected I think it's no mean feat caring for your loved one and it's no mean feat caring for your parent because you know that's that's not how it goes uh, in 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 a person with dementia, especially, I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but especially with my mom, you know, that was her role, not mine. Yeah. So you know, there were there there were you know, it was it was at times very very confrontational and very very difficult, you know, based on a relationship that we'd had as I was growing up, which was you know sticky, to say the least. So it's just kind of you know where she was at the point of remembering her daughter, me, or any of her other daughters or her son, you know, that it was complicated. And I can only speak for myself, really. It was a, it was very, very difficult. So, you know, given all of that and trying to cope with all of that, you know, I did this, it, it all came into my phone. I just tapped into my phone sitting there and she, she'd asked me. And I think she was quite pleased that I was happy to go on that journey with her, you know, be transported, you know, get on the train from Mumbai to Thakurli, as she did as a little girl, you know, eat the sandwiches with her, you know, and then she'd remember the cucumber sandwiches she'd have in that old British Raj tea place at the station at the the Victoria Terminus. And then she'd say, oh, your dad's friends used to laugh at me because I gave him cucumber sandwiches and they told him that he'd married an English girl. (laughs) (laughs) No Indian cuisine, just English food, you know, and that's what you get. And then she'd take me somewhere else to Nirmala Niketan, which was her finishing school, if you like, where she learned how to be a housewife. So my first question to you is, through your mother's illness, she was able to revisit her past and enable you to get to know so much more about her. And I wondered for yourself, with your son, what moments from your past you'd like to be able to take him to revisit with you so he could see you in the way that you started to rediscover your mother I think um yeah interesting um Akshay Akshay and his girlfriend came to the first night opening of everybody's talking about Jamie party in Sheffield when we opened the tour 
and um, I had a big dance with one of the uh, actors in the show. I mean, a proper dance. I'd call it a proper dance. And Akshay and Abby is his um, long-term girlfriend. I call her my daughter-in-law. Took me to one side and said, he didn't know that you could dance like that. <laughs> but you're a trained was, dancer and choreographer. Yeah, I know. But it's not just being a trained dancer. It's just, you know, you know, just having, getting down and dancing. You know the yeah. Steve McQueen film, uh, the small axe one, Love is Rock? Yeah. My mm. friend and I were laughing away, Sirita, she's an actor as well, and she said, Steve McQueen forgot me and you, didn't he, in the movie. <laughs> There's always one Asian girl in the corner having a dance. That was me and that was you back in the day. And she went, yeah. And I'd like to take them on the journey of being, you know, at the fulcrum of um, – black and brown theatre in this country where we were just out there making work, you know, Notting Hill Carnival, me wearing these mad costumes um, in the Royal Court, trying to get on stage in a big winged costume in some <laughs> crazy piece of theatre um, about being trans or, you know, or, or, you know, all of these things that are so out there now, we were just right at the fulcrum of it, right at the beginning, you know. And so when, you know, my son talks about non-binary and blah, 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 and I go, well, you know, I was dancing with a whole heap of Indian drag queens at the Royal Court, yeah. you know, in 1990, <laughs> there I was. You know, I'd become their big teacher doing these great big Bollywood numbers and, you know, all of that stuff I'd like to take him into the journey of you know making work um you know uh dancing down the Champs-Élysées talk me through that because you dance down the Champs-Élysées with the fire brigade spraying water over you as they kind of umbrellaed you literally they held umbrellas over you uh that it it sounded you know like a moment that you you will literally revisit on your deathbed Rolodex for sure yeah, I think, and it was a it was a time. I think there was a time when, you know, culture or the understanding of culture was celebrated. You know, the differences were celebrated, and the similarities, and what brought us here. And, and the thing about Jean Paul Goud, who was married to Grace Jones, or was still married to Grace Jones, I, I don't know. I haven't really looked that no, up for a. I, no, I don't he, he, he was such a visionary insofar as you know he thought you know, what has made France, you know, it was the bicentenary. You were working for him as a dancer and a choreographer on this particular uh, step. I didn't choreograph this one. So there's another dancer, just to confuse you, called Shobhana as well, Shobhana Jayasinghe, who's a very, very extraordinary choreographer. And I'd started working with Shobhana. There was big Shobhana and little Shobhana. <laughs> so right. I started working with Shobhana um, at the, you know, the beginning of my career. And that's how I met Jean Paul because she said, "Look, meet my meet meet Chauvinier. She she's she's what you would call the product of being in this country right at this moment." So I went off to find twenty dancers who had studied some Indian classical dance and who were prepared to work out of that those structures. And I um, and Lee Anderson who is the choreographer of a group called the Chumleys, she put this sort of white contingent in or the, or the, um, the 
representatively diverse contingent in. And what John Paul wanted to do was have these white men carry the umbrellas as a symbol of empire. And, you know, what empire, what, you know, the French empire, what the British empire, what all, you know, all over the Commonwealth. In Paris, you are doing this amazing set piece down the Champs-Élysées, around the Place de la Concorde. I can understand why you would want your son to be there for a moment like that, to see you in that that light. No, so it's kind of like, it's so interesting to, to you know, in, in terms of performance or making work, or, I'd like him to see my notation system that got me into dance school, do you know what I mean? I'd like to dig out all that paperwork, but much like my mum, I am a bit sort of surrounded by stuff to keep myself safe. I'm, I, I have actually gone exactly the same path as my mum. You write about the fact that once your father passed away and he died very young, he was 49 years old, you were a teenager yourself. But what he'd done was certainly within your community was given you as 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 his children permission to walk outside the lane of expectation. And people didn't say anything because he was a respected member of the community. He's a doctor. And then when he was gone, you you really felt that that loss of being afforded the opportunity to do what you felt was right for you, not what was expected of you. Yeah, he was the loudest, most happiest, most out there man. And, you know, my sisters were in a pop band, Kate. They were in a pop <laughs> band called the Golden Eagles. I, and they sang ABBA and Bollywood. They fronted three lads in safari suits and sunglasses. <laughs> I bet your dad loved that. Yeah, and yeah, he because he loved to sing. You know that we we lived in a house called Gitanjali, which means house of song. Oh. You know he loved to sing, and you know we were so lucky that you know there was all these community groups happening and you know springing up around us as we as we were trying to as as the new community find our feet and also keep some of the stuff from back home, their home, not my home, but their home. So not even my mum's home. So that's even more confusing. So but so we had all these artists stay in the house. We had this big long room. There were two big long rooms in the house. And I'd wake up in the morning, there'd be so many people in the kitchen making tea. Mum would be doing, you know, making um um potato curry with fried bread for breakfast and nice. And the music would start, you know, this little sort of organ harmonium, which is a thing that you sit and you pump air through, and tablas would go, and then people start singing, and then Hamer and Dad would start singing, Hamer being my elder sister. Mm. And then Sushma would be, you know, reluctantly pulled in because she was a little shy, but she still did sing. Then Mum would be dancing at the kitchen sink, and I'd be a bit mopey in my room upstairs, being a bit goth and a bit sort of alternative. <laughs> you know, I'm alternate, and I was quiet. I was quiet in public. Um, in public, I was less quiet. I was a problem child in front of everybody else. Well, deemed the problem child at home because I had an opinion. Um, but then outside of that, I was quite quiet. So they thought I was a little odd. They did. Your dad really again celebrated that. I mean. Yes, he tried to he tried to bring me out of my shell, so they suggested that I learn to dance. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You write in the book about yourself as being the family misfit. So there were two daughters and then you arrived and then a bit of a gap and then your brother arrived. And that kind of put some noises of of Joyce because actually he was afforded all kinds of like, he wasn't expected to help around the house because he's the boy. So your dad was being very progressive. Um, that still kind of remained almost that antiquated view of, you know, women serve and men just sit down. That really pissed you off. And you spoke up on this. And he kind of entertained that, didn't he? He was like, yeah, come on then. Yeah, but he did entertain that. And he, you know, he was permissive. He allowed us our opinions. I mean, our house was a big political noise. You know, dinner time, you know, everybody had an opinion. I mean, my mum voted Tory, my dad was Labour, my sister was Liberal. You know, it was just a, it was a crazy household. And if you didn't have the loudest voice, it's a bit like, do you remember being on No Swimming, Kate? You know, because I'm quite quiet and then suddenly I might say something. But most of the time I'm quite quiet and I'm just, you know, people used to just, you know, bash it and talk over. And that's how it was at home. So I wondered, what are the pros and cons of being an outlier and traveling in your own lane rather than following in somebody else's you know slipstream well I didn't I didn't always know that I would travel in my own lane I I literally thought that you know I'd I'd do my studies because that was very important Uh, above and beyond everything else though my dad did want me to be a little bit glamorous as well because he he did enjoy the glamour and the glitz of it all um, he'd often pull my hair because I, my sisters would curl their hair with Carmen rollers. Yeah. And I wouldn't. And he'd go, that's limp, Shobna, limp. All right. But, you know, so I just kind of, I thought I'd get married uh, after I, I'd, I'd meet somebody at university, get married, have children, you know, find a job, all of those things. That's what I thought was going to happen. Well, you kind of did. did. You did get married and it didn't work out. 
Yeah, so I think when Dad died, that really changed it all. That kind of exploded it all. That was the grenade that went off. And uh, I, I only really discovered that whilst I was writing, if that makes really? sense. Really? Yeah, I just didn't, you know, I just couldn't, you know, as I was creating the world that we were in as a family and how it, joyful it was, you know, it was tough. Of course it was tough because there was all these things to balance, you know, bringing up children, you crossing cultures, crossing boundaries, all of those things, you know, boyfriends, smoking, drinking, everything like that, all of those things, you know, had to be sort of negotiated, makeup, hair removal, sanitary towels, all of it, you know, it was, I had to be negotiated, but it was just, you know, it was. And then, yeah, when he, yeah, I think it just exploded us as a family, you know, we became fractured. Yeah, I mean, say in the book that, he was so vibrant. He would wear these powder blue suits with safari pockets. And, you know, he would love to, there was a joy for him in getting dressed up. He was very social. Um, he was the party. And when he passed away, you said it was like your world became monochrome and all of that glorious Technicolor seeped out of it. I think, you know, when my mum died, one of one of the girls from our community, friends, she came up and she said, you know, we all really love coming to your house because everything was loud. We all had a laugh. There was no, you know, there were no, there didn't seem to be any rules. And then, you know, and then she laughed and she said, yeah, but then when we'd get in the car, everybody would be going, oh, that Gulati family, you know, they're terrible. <laughs> you know, oh, I don't want you to be like those girls, you know. <laughs> oh, they- you know, a little bit of bitchiness in the car going home. But she said, oh, we just loved it because it was just, you know. Well, that's what I loved is that I got this sense that your dad encouraged you to be opinionated, to challenge and push boundaries. Um, I mean, you went and you went to Manchester University and you have a degree in Arabic and Middle Eastern politics, but then straight into an acting career. Your sisters were in a pop band, although one of them's now a dentist. Your brother's a doctor. But you were all allowed to explore who you might be. You, you know, and, and you were allowed to play. And I, I've, I'm fascinated by the fact that you were allowed and afforded that in, in what is considered to be, you know, a strict community, certainly where women are concerned. Yeah, I think he was very much like that. And my mum used to have his her memories of him. She used to say, you know, there was no sort of housekeeping in a little tin. You know, he didn't give me money because she didn't work. So he said she, he never sort of gave me housekeeping in a tin. He just said you can just get what you like. It's fine. We'll just we'll just get what we like and see what we do. I mean, my mother and father had to leave their parents and start to forge their own path. Mm. And, you know, I I have a I found a letter many years ago that's in the book from my grandfather to my mother my dad's dad to my mother, which basically is slightly passive aggressive. It's saying, you know, can't you have a baby boy? What's wrong with you? You know, you've had another girl. There must be yeah, there was a massive, There was a massive air, of, massive air of disappointment when you arrived and you were a girl. Yeah, so I think... And nobody were, hid that from you, did they, by the way? That no, was never concealed from you. That's but, awful. <laughs> I think my dad sort of, you know, secretly must have thought, well, you know, that's not very fair. So tried to forge his own path without his parents. 
you know, yeah. if we'd been brought up in India, it might have been a different thing. It feels like he gave you the gloves to go out and box your way into whatever life felt like the right life for you. Yeah, but he came with the rule, though. It came with the rule that if you're boxing, you have to be the best boxer or else. So pick your battles wisely. Pick your battles wisely, but do your best and do your very best. And you have to be better than everybody else. So no pressure. Um, so so what, what battles have you picked that you have, you think he would have thought, yeah, do you know what? Shobna fought that battle really well, better than anyone else, and it was a battle worth fighting. Well, if he were, if he had been alive, he would probably have thought, well, I've had quite a charmed career. I mean, not that it hasn't come without battle and struggle and hard work, of course. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, he he would he would have been beaming about that. You know, he would have loved the the yes, the sparkle of it all. So, mm. yeah, but, you know, I don't think he would have understood the ups and downs of show business as much. Um, and, and we would probably have come to blows there, you know, with the ups and downs of it. He wouldn't have got that. He wouldn't have I understand the famine and the feast. No. And uh, I think he faced famine and feast in his own work. He He never became the consultant he wanted to be. He had to choose. Because by that time, he'd got two kids and he had to choose, you know, is it, is it money for the kids' shoes or is it trying to break through the glass ceiling and become a consultant? No, he decided that money for the kids' shoes. And I think working that hard killed him too. I really do. Mm -hmm. I think he had an early death because he worked so hard. I mean, he parted hard for sure, but he worked so hard. He absolutely worked so hard. And, you know, we'd never see him. <laughs> we'd never see him. His greatest love was the golf course. And my <laughs> mom, you know, you know, she, she was never worried that he'll have an affair. He just said the affair was the golf course. Those luminous green balls he even plays at night, she'd say. <laughs> what I love about having written the book, it's the minutiae of our day-to-day -day life that we don't see. You know, in Britain, you don't really see that about other communities. I mean, mm. we've only just started seeing it in those Steve McQueen small axe movies. Yeah. But we, we haven't, you know, it's almost like and the opportunity to be afforded to talk about my life like that, I'm so grateful for. And I hope that I've given you a little window into, you know, the universality of being a human being. You really you know, have. You know, the other battle I thought that um, I was that I thought you faced, and um, and I thought that your mum was amazing in her support was when you decided to become a single parent, which um, didn't go down well with your siblings. For example, they thought there was a, a great sense of shame attached to that, and your mum was was actually having none of it, even though she did kind of go through the. The process of well, are you going to have the baby? Shall we go and sit, you know have a consultation at a clinic to see if you were going to go ahead with with becoming a mum? And she was from the moment that you decided that that's your path. She never left your side, did she? No, she never left my side. I think going back to what you said about her being a widower, and then talking about the girls in the car on the way home with their parents going, "Don't be like those Granati girls." I think after mum dad died. You know, that protection had gone. So don't be like those Gulati girls. She faced up front and personal. 
So for her to overcome, you know, the pressures that she was facing from her friends and the community and then back home, you know, what what is it that this daughter has done? I mean, not only had I um, had a failed marriage, I had a baby out of wedlock whilst I was still separated and by a person that nobody knew about. And then that person was also of a completely different heritage, an African-Caribbean background, which, you know, given the racism that exists across the board, and especially within Punjabi South Asian culture, that was just an absolute, you know, no-no. And yet my mum, you know, overcame all of that because she wanted to understand she wanted to she wanted to be with me in that journey I don't know how she did it actually I that's I mean I don't know how she managed to you know because all she was she was also you know um described as being you know, off the rails after my my dad died because she was hysterical. I mean, she was 45 years old with four kids and out of the blue, he's dead. And of course you're going to be hysterical. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's about women as well, how people perceive women. Yeah. So you she wouldn't had say that a man in that position was hysterical. You'd say he was grieving. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> she had all these things thrown at her. Yet she, I think, whatever was instilled in her as a young girl, you know, how to be and how to give and how to, under, you know, whether that was instilled in her or was a part of her already. She just didn't, she she felt like it was her duty. That's in Hinduism as well. You know, you have a duty to your, you know, you know it's quite a, it's quite a religion that separates things off, you know, mm. you you're a spirit of non-attachment, but your love is there. My, she loved boys more than she did girls. I mean, that, did I mean, she? absolutely. That wasn't, even, that wasn't hidden. I mean, even down to the animals in her garden. <laughs> I'll tell you this story because it's funny. So she used to think that cats were female, mostly. Right. Right. Oh no, I know that they're male and female cats, but of course. she decided that the cat was female and the cat that come in a garden, she'd go, I don't like, I don't like her. She should guard my garden and she'd shout, and, and, and the Hindi word for a cat is Billy. She'd go, Billy, out of my garden. And she'd tap on the window. And then the fox would come in and she'd go, come in, Mr. Fox. I've left you something. <laughs> Foxes were male and cats were female. And Mr. Fox got food. And the cat had to go. Isn't that a lovely contradiction, though? Because her act of support for you was in, was incredibly feminist, and yet she was entirely sexist when it came to the cats and the foxes in your garden. I love that. <laughs> and why can't we be a contradiction? <laughs> well, yeah, she can be all of those things. And I mean, she loved her. She loved. She loved her son. I mean, the most. You know, he, he was the blessing, and he is a blessing, and he was a blessing to her in her life it was it was slightly sticky with me I maybe she, you know my dad would say I reminded him of her and my mom would say you're just like your father you know <laughs> I just, 
it was confusing <laughs> it was confusing so um yeah incredibly so yes yeah. so i think she was a secret feminist in the book where you're writing about the fact that you all had chores in the house you and your two sisters and you would you know you would be the sous chef helping your mum prepare for dinner your other sister would lay the table the other one would be you know off doing something else and your brother would just sit there yeah, and then you'd would. all have to clear up but he would just sit there and that was because he was told to not because he chose not to, to get involved that was what was okay for boys to do I was slightly outraged reading that I think I would have punched my brother if he just sat there like that but it's really interesting because on Instagram there's all these like different sort of cultural windows into people's lives because it's a worldwide thing, isn't it? And and it had this boy doing all the girls girls tasks, uh-huh. and the equality is a hard thing to find. Let me ask you this: How did it sit with the clash of attitudes towards the male role between you and your mum as you both raised your son? That that must have provided some explosive discussions. Very explosive discussions, although, you know, I do bow to her in baby care. I mean, flipping it without my mum, I don't think I would have coped. I, you know, you, you have a baby, you don't really know what to do. You no, know, it's not there's natural. no manual, yeah. There's no manual, it's not natural. I didn't even know how to bathe him, you know. She, told, she, you know, she taught me the ways of, she was the ultimate baby whisperer. So I think, I think, I think she was, she was brilliant at it when he was a, little because she could do all that care thing and it didn't matter whether it was a boy or a girl she did all that care thing but because he was a boy she was even more caring and I <laughs> you know it was kind of like because my when my nieces arrived she she was still loving but she was kind of harder on them <laughs> argue that she was harder on them um yeah boys just get away with it I don't know what it is when Akshay was with mum, it was mum's rules. And then when he was with me, it was our rules. You know, because girls and their naked bodies and all of that, you know, comes under the big umbrella of shame. Let him be. If he wants to run around naked, let him be. And I don't, I, and you know, there was no celebration about being naked. It was always like, <gasps> cover up. I think he was, he was allowed much more freedom than than we were as children and perhaps even more than my brother was afforded. Um, My final question to you, you've written this book and you're talking about this book now. You were determined to learn more about your mum, but I wondered what you learned about yourself through crafting this book. I learned that if I put my mind to it, like everybody said I should have done when I was little, I can actually achieve something. <laughs> I can actually, you know, I have got the discipline and the determination. I saw myself for the first time because uh, to examine somebody else, you need to examine yourself. And Absolutely. I, haven't, I haven't, I don't regret anything. And I understand that I've made mistakes and I understand the consequences of my actions on people's lives as much as theirs on mine. I think for the first time, maybe it's just getting older, but I feel like I can look inside out and outside in. And that love, you know, I've been a bit bitter and twisted about love, but love can, can conquer all. What a lovely conclusion to reach. So it softened your heart. 
It has, it has, it has. I've been so um, closed to to it all. I think I didn't really reach inside for ages. I've just been going around a bit, sort of. I think it takes an enormous strength to examine yourself. Yeah, because you have to be prepared for not liking what you see and then yeah, addressing and that. I'm not particularly like myself, and that's manifested in all sorts of, you know, acting out behaviour, which... Um, you know, which I've done from when I was little. Uh, and so it's just a question of what does that mean for me now at 54 years old? Am I still going to act out or am I just going to, you know, look at myself a little bit more carefully and uh, and understand what that is? It's lovely, Shobna, that your mum continues to educate you, to shape you and to teach you even when she's no longer here and you're in your quest to better understand her she's teaching you to better understand yourself yeah she's clever isn't it and she's not an ordinary woman she's an extraordinary woman I've loved reading her story and I I really enjoyed her company that night in a glittery ballroom in Manchester and um and I applaud you for putting this pen to paper because I do think that uh, I don't know how you can write this book and not grow from it yourself um you as an author um and as a human being so I, I think it was a great act of courage at a time when you were flawed when I I was halfway through the book when I realized Shobna wrote this while she would like couldn't breathe with COVID that's insane it didn't it was insane but I was so connected to her I felt like I was in her world I mean COVID for everybody has locked us all into our rooms I wrote a poem about that. I wrote, we, we've all been sent to our room and we've been locked in and, you know, some of us face ourselves. You know, I'm not going to judge anybody really, but some of us do face ourselves and some cover it up and some go, okay. I mean, this is the this is what's happening now. Everybody's had to look at themselves. I, I, you know, I almost sort of tweeted this morning, what did we do before that we were so busy, so busy ignoring our lives? by doing things and you know all of a sudden we've just come into sharp focus and we have to examine ourselves otherwise the world won't survive so best get on with it <laughs> best get on with it <laughs> thank you so much for sharing so much of your life and your mum's life um that these are really important stories and everyday people don't get enough credit and your mum described herself as ordinary I think she's an everyday star because every one of us has a great story to tell and now hers will live on a bookshelf in bookshops um forevermore and you've put that there what an well, achievement it's a, it's a, it's her legacy I'm a yeah. product of it you know it's the legacy of I think you know every it's another story of people who come and uh, come to a different country and make their lives yeah. you know and what that means and how that then manifests in the generations that follow and yeah it's a little bit of social history as well which i it really is i really wanted to to write i really wanted to write thank you so much thank you keep telling your stories because they're a joy and i will look forward to it and my love to you stay safe Thank Try you. not to climb the walls and I'll see you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. I can't wait. My huge thanks to Shobna Galati for sharing the, the many stories that sit beneath the pages of her brilliant book, which is out now 
on Kindle edition, paperback and in hardback. And you can catch Shobnet every week competing in Britain's best home cook, trying to curry favour with Mary Berry on the BBC. That's it for this week's White Wine Question Time. Thank you for lending us your ears. If you are in any way feeling inclined to rate or review us, we'd love you for it, especially if you've got good things to say. Uh, As always, the show is produced by me, Kate Thornton, with Michael Bartolomwich for Yahoo UK, with Callum Goddard-Mucklow co-producing and editing. Our music is provided by Andy Bell. As always, I must implore you to do as we do and please drink responsibly. And please, more importantly... Look after yourselves. I'll see you next week. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with this, a poem that Shobna has written about heartache on the life we've been living since March the 23rd last year, when we all went into lockdown. Ramping up even sounds corrupt. Rolling out, government mouths idly spout. Keeping some with and many without. Hunger in numbers. Please, sir, can I have some more? I thought that's what happened before in that supposed rose-misted, twisted past, where we're often asked to compare and contrast the truth as proof, then and now, to sneakily allow the multimillionaire to decide and hide who has and who has not got what it takes. But it's them on the make. The donors become owners of those then who were chosen to lead who can't even feed our children in 2021. That's not okay, hon. That Brexit they voted was not what you hoped it would be. At the border, a new world order, the real meal deal. Europe wants the ham, not the strawberry jam, in our foiled rat butties, those UK truckies, unlucky. Abandoned ship, shoot from the hip, waving the flag, the big bold flag. Even the sunny Costa Brits now give a shit. Funny that, Eviva Espana, we totally see you. Tied up in red tape, too little, too late, with the rolling hills of Tuscany, abandoned by month three. Now in quarantine, sovereign supreme, our small island of not so dry land. Babe, it's all gone tits up, visas, work permits kicked into touch. And Donald Trump, the proud, pathetic orange punk of the comb over, the brutal mishandling of the Rona. Both sides of the pond, they've got it wrong. Shattering our medics in this out-of-control pandemic. Inequality rates and democracy stains. Impeached. The privilege of free speech. Dictatorial powers enable us and allow us. We're just tossed under a bus. That's clearly, nearly, all of us. P.S. Save the bees, please. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.